Welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum. It is the show that covers horror movie franchises one movie and one episode at a time. And this week, we are setting off the sirens, we are battening down the hatches, and we are grabbing any weapon we have on hand because we are kicking off a new series with The Purge, written and directed by Nostradamus, apparently. So, fantastic. As always, I am not alone, and I have two people by my side that I know could absolutely tear it up on Purge Night. Up first, from the Disenfranchised podcast, which really would be like if there was a Purge, I guess we would have to go after you because we're on opposite ends of the spectrum here. We kind of are, yeah. yeah. It's Mr. Stephen Foxworthy. Stephen, how are we? Doing great, Mike. I got my I got my knife on hand. You got a shiv! I, I do. It's actually a hunting knife. I it ju- I just happened to have this here. I was uh, I was I had to open some mail earlier, so I just happened to have it at my desk. Amazing. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm prepped and ready for this recording. You are. Mike, unless if, if there was any doubt in your mind, um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, come at me, bro. Steven <laughs> is ready to throw down. He's got his knife, his little homemade shiv. Excellent. I love it when you come prepared. All right. I try. Also joining us, and I see her furiously looking around the room like, what can she grab? Uh, from Ghouls Magazine, back for more after making her debut on three episodes of the Phantasm series, Miss Ario Power Shab. Ario, how are we? May God be with me, apparently, because I did not bring uh, any kind of weapon to this gunfight you guys are having. <laughs> Other than that, I'm good. I'm looking around like... I live in the Midwest. There must be a weapon within reach of me somewhere. <laughs> I was going to say anything, honestly, any, if you're from the Midwest, anything you can grab can be fashioned into a weapon relatively I mean, easily. that's the Pass- attitude I bring to life. Mm. So, yes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Passive- that's, that's the Midwest credo right there. <laughs> Passive aggressive politeness. And shivs. Disarming. Okay. Disarming. You're thinking persons. Minnesota. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
you know, we are here to talk the purge. And I guess before we get a little bit into the background of the movie, uh, and it is the newest series we're covering, which is kind of interesting. Like this is the newest franchise that we've covered. So I kind of want to get your initial thoughts, like when you first saw the movie, what your initial impressions of it are. Uh, and, you know, also, if you were to take part in a purge night, what would be your crime of choice? Like, what would you do? So I was late to the party. I was late to the purge party. And I watched it for the first time during the first round of COVID lockdowns. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So there was some processing that had to happen there. Um, I just missed it when it first came out. I didn't mean to, but like the early to mid 2010s i was really busy i was in grad school and i just was working a lot and so i just was like i missed a lot of movies that came out at that time and i'm catching up on them which is fine but there was one night in lockdown where i was just like well i haven't seen the purge yet i guess i'll do that and um (laughs) i i was muted when you said it was written by uh nostradamus but i laughed a lot at that because i totally know what you mean and i'm sure we'll get into it just with um with everything, gestures broadly at everything for the last few years, right? right? Um, I So that's a lot of pressure to pick your crime for Purge Night. So first of all, I don't think I want to go out because I don't want to die, right? So mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, what crimes could I commit from home? So I'm like, oh, some kind of identity theft, but I don't want to wreck another person's life. Mm-hmm. Like, I kind of want to figure out a way to Robin Hood this. And, like, because the other thing I think about is, like, then I have to deal with the guilt tomorrow. So I don't want to do anything too bad where I'm going to not be able to deal with it later. So I'm like, can I, like, I don't know, steal a bunch of money from a corporation that doesn't need it and give it to people who do need it? That's, like, the lamest possible answer for this question. (laughs) But I just also don't want to admit on recording what also might be true. So we're going to leave it at that. Okay. So what would you say then? <laughs> because because it's just the three uh-huh. of us. No one else will hear this. What's the worst crime you have done? What can you admit to on tape right now? I was arrested for shoplifting when I was 17. And I did have to go to jail Oof. for like a day. So Wow, a day. Yeah. Not like a little. Wow. For like oh, I, like That's... a work day. Like, like yeah. 10 hours. Okay. So my record's expunged. Because I was a minor and I did probation and things like that. Um, I didn't think you were going to answer. Holy crap. Right. Hey, man. You know, we were all teenagers once. Mm -hmm. We made some mistakes. I own my mistakes. Did you find the largest person in jail and punch them? Like, to just show your dominance right away? (laughs) No, I was scared shitless, dude. (laughs) I was glad they let me wear my shoes. Like... Oh wow! Okay. I was I was terrified. I was in a cell with like a drunk tank, basically, with like fifteen other women who are all older than me, and some of them were fighting, and some of them were crying, and there was just an open toilet, and I was very out of my element, obviously. So I was just like, I'm gonna sink into the wall until someone comes mm-hmm. to get me. It was very dumb. Are you sure that you just? weren't in the movie malignant i mean had i been in the movie malignant that would have been sweet okay <laughs> right i'm a big fan Excellent. of malignant so i won't hear otherwise. oh as all of us as i say we all yeah as we all are 
Steven, how about yourself? Your first experience? Uh, I also late to the party on this one. Uh, did not did not see this movie until I think it was just a couple years ago, 2021, actually. Um, watched this movie um, and was really impressed by it. Uh, thought I might want to go ahead and try to watch all the Purge movies and then didn't get around to any of the others. So this is the only movie in this franchise I've seen. I'm very excited to dig into the rest of them uh, as we continue throughout this series. Um, but yeah, I really dug it. I, I was telling you before we started recording, I really love the way that genre fiction in particular is able to kind of deal with political storytelling or religious storytelling in a way that seems kind of unapproachable from a, a from a straightforward means. And by by using kind of a hyperbolic way to tell the story, um, you're able to kind of see the reality of the situation a lot clearer. And I think this movie does that really, really well. Yeah. Excellent. And for yourself, it's purge night. It's purge night. Get away with um, anything. I look it. I am. I am at heart, deep down in in the depths of my soul. I am a coward. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am Kevin McAllistering that shit. Um, this is my house. I have to defend it. Um, I have a I have a bowling pin in the other <laughs> room, so I've got something I can use to bludgeon people with. Um, that was given to me by my late grandfather. I've got a spoon here that says it kills monsters if you believe it does. So I can I can gouge eyes with that. I've got this knife. I've got, like I said, I'm from the Midwest. I've got a nutcracker here because I was I had nuts for a snack earlier, so I'm sure I could do some damage with this. Um, like I just, you know, I'm, you know, you come at the king, you best not miss. I guess I don't have any handguns, but I've got a, <laughs> I have other things with which I can use to defend myself. But no, I'm not going out and committing crimes. I'm I am as I said a coward. Even if I knew I could get away with it, it would take a lot to work up the, okay. the nerve to actually go out and do crimes. And if you had committed a crime in your past, which crime would that have been? Um, I don't know, probably some kind of moving violations. Okay, jaywalking. Um, <laughs> yeah, jaywalking. Uh, you know, speeding. Um, stuff like that. Sure. I'm. I am. Look, I. I was. Uh, I was. Uh, I was a, a. A Christian school teacher for uh, eight years, so I'm. I'm not the. I'm not the guy who, who's going to go out and commit crimes. So well, there's still time. Well, you say that, but I mean, you I, just I, pointed to everything in your house and talked about right. how you would use it to hurt people. So I'm going to go on record as never messing with you. <laughs> Look, but here's the thing. I am. I, I talk a big game, but I'm just a marshmallow. Oh, I'm. I'm just. I'm just a big old cuddly teddy bear. Ask anybody; <laughs> they'll tell you. Yeah. Um, I give the best hugs in the world, and um, and and I like to. I like to give hugs. Excellent. So, if you see me on the street, ask my permission. I'll probably okay. give you a hug. All right, big spoon. Um, <laughs> damn straight. Damn straight. So for me, I believe this was like an opening afternoon movie. Like it was at a time where. I routinely worked on the road and made my own schedule. So if a new movie was coming out, I was interested in like, it would be like 10 AM showing on a Friday to catch it. And especially coming off of sinister, like I was all there for the Ethan Hawke Renaissance in uh, genre films. So I was very excited for that reason. And the hook of this movie, the 12 hours of, violence occurring and no repercussions of it was very intriguing to me. I'm like, this sounds like a pretty interesting premise. I remember enjoying the movie. I thought it was a pretty solid genre effort, a pretty good action horror movie. 
but also thinking like there sure wasn't a lot of actual purge events in this movie. It felt it felt like it was a massive world and we were shown one very, very small section of it, which caused me to miss the next two movies. Like I didn't have still haven't watched Purge Anarchy, still haven't watched Purge Election Year. The first Purge drew me in with its poster. Going like, oh, all right, we're on the same side here. I will absolutely be going to this. And I caught the um, first Purge, uh, the Forever Purge in theaters when theaters reopened again. Not because I had a massive burning desire to see it because of that movie, but just movie theaters are open again. I will go see anything right now and enjoyed both of those movies to varying degrees so my thought on the series as a whole is that and i think i'm with you steven it's there's a lot of meat to chew on with like the concepts of this movie and it's going to be interesting to see if the films themselves live up to like the meaty texture because i'm just you know little inside baseball i haven't done as much prep for this is typical because I want to spread it out over the next few episodes. Some of these concepts I think go in each one goes a little bit deeper so I kind of want to go a little bit deeper with each episode with the psychology, the sociology and the economic economic principles of each of these movies and save a little bit but there's been a fairly decent amount of academic papers written on this series in particular the first three movies over the past few years and some of these articles are a pretty good read so that should be interesting so let's talk a little bit about the background of this movie and there's not a ton it's pretty straightforward compared to like our phantasm (laughs) series where each of those movies felt like a, a minor miracle to create and had a pretty in-depth and interesting story. This is really the story of, in some ways, Blumhouse, which it's Jason Blum's production company. They have a very solid business model, which is we're going to focus almost exclusively on low-budget genre and horror movies that we feel there's enough of a concept there that we can invest a little bit of money but make a lot of money very low risk high reward business model and has served him really well starting with paranormal activity Hmm. it was created by oren pelly and that will be a that'll be a really fun series to cover at some point i'm thinking sooner than late by 2024 we'll get to that series because i love the first few although they didn't create paranormal activity they acquired it from oren pelly the rights to distribute it for about a million bucks. And it would go on to make almost $200 million worldwide in 2009. So mm. hard to argue with that return on investment. And after that, they just started to churn out very much like Saw, which is ironic because it was the first paranormal activity movie. It came out the year, I want to say, was it Saw 6 or 7, six. Ari? Yeah. 6, okay. That's kind of the one that killed the franchise, 
correct compared to how it was a much lower return than the others had done. Yes, it made less money than any of the movies, even though it was reviewed really favorably. And that's why they wrapped it up with one more movie instead of two more, which they had originally planned. And it's interesting sure. because the fifth movie did very well financially, but wasn't reviewed very well. And the sixth movie is just like objectively better. Mm-hmm. And we see that a lot, though. Like you see that mm-hmm. with like Friday the 13th part five, I think made more than part six did which was the return of jason it's usually like it's not the bad entry that can really harm a franchise it's the one after that especially pre-social media you know sure right absolutely and that makes sense i mean you go to see the bad one and you're like i'm done with this so Mm -hmm. when the next one comes out you're like i'm out i i I swore off it and i'm yo you tell me it's good i don't believe it no so you think about that first paranormal activity really changes the landscape there was a time where i want to say like blumhouse had inked a deal with paramount saying we're going to create all of these like very small million dollar movies and paramount was going to distribute them and almost flood the market with horror movies did he sign with paramount first because i know he's with universal now they're with universal now and i think it was going to be a first look deal with paramount um I want to say The Devil Inside is like one of those projects. Mm-hmm. The Last Exorcism maybe is well. Oh no, The Last Exorcism I don't think is a Blumhouse movie, so strike that. But The Devil Inside was one of those ideas where Paramount, or it may not have been Blumhouse, it was Paramount that was going to create like a budget in, within their studio that was going to focus exclusively on low-budget horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't quite come to fruition, or if it did, it took a lo- much longer time. But over seven years, there were six Paranormal Activity movies. At less than $30 million bucks to create, they pull in just under $900 million, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And then by the time they get to part six, after Ghost Dimension doesn't do quite as well as the others, they're like, let's quit while we're ahead right now. They don't run the series into the ground this is probably if the purge the second most successful original series that blumhouse has created and in between the two series you have a number of like original hits you have sinister you have insidious you know sinister three million bucks to create makes 90 million dollars in theaters uh insidious a million and a half bucks to create it's really a dry run for the conjuring makes over 40 million bucks in North America. And this is all pre-DVD, pre-Blu-ray sales, pre-rights packaging. You have Happy Death Day, Get Out, Split, The Visit, Us, The Invisible Man, and then the Halloween reboot, which that first movie went on to be the most profitable slasher movie of all time. And they focused nearly on genre films you get like i rewatched the gift recently oh shoot. which was more of a thriller yeah. it's really good it's good and i had for forgotten the twist of that not really the twist but the, the kind of idea that jason bateman yeah. yeah is an asshole the whole movie mm-hmm. and that you really shouldn't be rooting for him at all and i forgot rebecca hall was even in that movie so that was a delight because mm-hmm. she's amazing I, I thought you were talking about the Sam Raimi movie for a second. Different and I was movie. Very confused. Different yeah. movie. So, but he's really focused on genre films. 
despite that, I can't help but notice a lot of backlash against Blumhouse by a lot of genre fans. And a lot of the movies that I'm naming, like, I really like these movies. So sometimes I'm at a, a bit of a loss as to why there is this backlash. And Ari, you have some <laughs> thoughts on this, so... Yeah, well, okay. So I also really like Blumhouse movies a lot, or I tend to. Like uh, Bria Grant's Torn Hearts that came out last year. Oh my god, that was one of my favorite movies of the year. And that's Blumhouse. Um, Jason Blum himself, I think, needs to close his mouth about 10% to 12% more frequently. And I think we would do better. So, I mean, there's always going to be fans who just hate whatever the popular thing is is and if Blumhouse is doing the popular thing and making money and putting out the stuff some fans are going to be too cool for that okay we set them aside but then you've got Jason Blum saying all types of crazy stuff and he's a rich eccentric guy who's funding all these movies so like he's probably on a power trip I've not met him all I can go on in his is his online personality and I really, it is hard for me to move past him saying, I don't remember the direct quote, but he was basically... Oh, I have it. Yeah, w- women don't want to direct horror movies or whatnot. Would you care to read this off? Yes, can, yes. It is bottom of page two, I believe. I promise I looked over the notes before we recorded. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> page one. There I barely is. did. Bottom of page one, my bad. So uh, in his infinite wisdom, Jason Blum famously said... There are not a lot of female directors, period, and even less who are inclined to do horror. I'm a massive admirer of the Babadook director, Jennifer Kent. I've offered her every movie we've had available. She's turned me down every time. So, first of all, big if true, do you think he really offered every movie to Jennifer Kent? Because I don't believe that. Also, there are other female directors outside of jennifer kent you don't say i i heard he offered get out to jennifer kent he's like thanks jordan Peele, <laughs> but jennifer's got this could you as imagine? a woman from australia that would be amazing oh i believe that he has offered her projects. okay i don't think every movie I, that that sounds like hyperbole yeah. but i feel like he's but she also strikes me as the kind of filmmaker who wants to do something that she believes mm-hmm. in and is personal to her uh, she strikes me as, as something of an auteur yeah. um and those people aren't just going to sign up for anything a producer comes to them with. So She reminds me of a Robert Eggers. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so I think, I mean, that was crazy. And Jason Blum, I mean, he's going to take forever to live that down, right? But um, those are the main reasons why I think fans have some trouble with him. But I do like most Blumhouse movies. Yeah, it was a very unfortunate quote, <laughs> and it was a very yeah. telling quote. He walked it back a day later, and he owned it. I mean, I think that there is a lost art in apologizing, and I think we're often very poor at it. Like, the most typical apology you see is, sorry if my words offended you in somehow, which is not really an apology. It's really saying you're a stupid, weak baby. This apology, His apology wasn't that. It was more along the lines of, like, you called me out on this, and you're right to do so. And he talked about a number of his hires that he's had, like a lot of his crew. He said it's about like 50-50 between uh, men and women that work for him. But his – and he went on with his with his deal with Amazon because there was the Blumhouse and Amazon partnership where they were releasing 
a number of movies a year. And I think also through Hulu, where that is where he started to offer a number of uh, like women fronted or uh, women identifying directors, like a lot of these movies, but they weren't theatrical releases. So there is there's a separation there. And he would go on to offer Black Christmas 2019 almost as a rush job. Like, I have to get something greenlit to uh, Sophia Tikal, which that movie, I know there's a lot of staunch defenders of it. And I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but I'm saying that from the time they were given to write a script, cast it, direct it, edit it, market it, put it in theaters, it's a very good first draft of a movie but it needed more time to percolate and i felt like that was a rush job and not that they set her up to fail but they were so desperate to get something out into theaters that maybe they could have waited a bit longer i'm one of those staunch defenders mostly just i mean i agree with everything you said but mostly just because i want people to give it a chance for what it is but you're Mm -hmm. right i want to see the movie it could have been because again a lot of stuff to chew on and it's not really a remake of black christmas at all it's a much different movie so good for that for that Mm -hmm. reason and because that's what i was expecting when i went in i don't think i had as much fun with it as i probably would have if i didn't have that that name recognition in my head so i need to go back and watch it with fresh eyes but yeah that that whole franchise is or i guess not a franchise that 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 movie and its subsequent remakes are all very different and very interesting sure Absolutely. So that's Blumhouse, and I'm sure we'll get more into them. But they're the ones that are kind of like behind this movie financing it. And again, none of these movies cost. But like this is a five million dollar movie that goes on to make close to a hundred million dollars in theaters. Like debuts to thirty four million its opening weekend in North America. It's like you've already made everything you need to back and then mm-hmm. some. So there's no reason to not continue. And what I always find interesting is when a movie like Happy Death Day, the second movie doesn't do as well as the first, but it's still very profitable. And there's a very, like, I think Christopher Landon has a very specific idea as how to close that out, but he can't get it greenlit because it just doesn't have enough cost to profitability. It's a very specific formula that I don't know what it is, but I can't see a third Happy Death Day losing money. I want to see, and I, I mentioned this on my own podcast not that long ago, I want to see a crossover between Happy Death Day and Freaky. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to see that crossover happen. Yeah. Um, like, I think that would be just, really fun. Just with, like, a third Happy Death Day and let it close out. But there we go. That's another... What if, what if we make the third Happy Death Day the second Freaky? Yeah, we could do that, baby. Possible. I'd, I'd, I'd have fun with that. Possible. I'd be on board for that. So, moving right on to The Purge, it's created by James DeMonico, and he gets the idea from an old Star Trek episode, Return of the Archons. I have never watched an episode of Star Trek. It oh, you're missing out, Mike. huge, huge hole in my nerddom and fandom. Same. So, is this an episode that you are familiar with, Steven? It is not, sadly. No, I... What good are you to do right now? You do the Vulcan... Mike, I've been telling you this for years. I am no good to anybody. Excellent. (laughs) 
but I'm here anyway. So okay. do with that what you will. Well, we'll try. I guess we'll try. That's all you can do, really. Really, I mean, I'm I'm here. <laughs> so you were saying before I interrupted? No, I was. I was. I know. I. I my particularly the original series. Like I did not grow up with the original series as much as I did the movies. Um, like my dad was a big fan of Star Trek when he was growing up. He was born in '53, so he would have been like a preteen when Star Trek was coming out. Um, and so he was really into that growing up, really into like sci-fi and stuff. So I was into sci-fi because that's what he was into. Watched, you know, the Star Trek movies. I grew up on, you know, Star Trek two, three, four, to a lesser degree, five. Like we had, I think almost the entire franchise like taped off of television onto VHS. So I love Star Trek. Star Trek is my jam, but unfortunately the original series, I don't have as much familiarity with Mm -hmm. because by the time I was a kid, that wasn't in syndication anywhere. Like my Star Trek is Next Generation Deep Space okay. Nine. Like that's what I grew up on. Okay. And Ari, I think you said the same thing. Huge. Hole, yeah, right? I think maybe I've seen one of the newer movies. Sure. I don't know anything about Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trek rules. Very similar. I think my wife enjoys like the new episodes and like she's into it. It's just something I've never gotten into. But this particular episode, it's the crew of the Enterprise beaming to a planet that is controlled by a computer called Landru. And it basically is a massive surveillance system that punishes persons for any crime. At 6 p.m. every night, the computer would shut down for maintenance and the red hour would commence where the planet's citizens would basically go apeshit and commit every atrocity under the sun as a means to cut loose. Okay. So that episode had always stuck with DeMonico. Now, prior to The Purge, he's a writer in movies like Jack, which I think is a Robin Williams movie. Saw the Your Face Francis there. Francis Ford Coppola's Jack. Oh, dear. Yeah. Okay. Oh, dear. The Negotiator uh, and The Assault on Precinct 13 remake, which stars Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke. And he talks about his own childhood in an interview where he grew up in Brooklyn And he's like, look, I'm not a violent person, but I'm pretty comfortable being around a violence. We saw it a lot in our neighborhood. There was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of other stuff going on. So it never struck him as odd to be around violence. It just was kind of natural growing up. And he says he moves to Paris and he says he's there for eight years. And he noticed how different the, the relationship was to guns and gun culture overseas in Europe than compared to the American experience where now like newborns are given like a cult uh, basically a cult 45 to basically suck on as a pacifier when they're born um, I mean it is a traditional Midwest baby shower gift it is yeah. it's like offensive yeah. I mean, the if latest... you don't buy it so right. it, it's a huge yeah. taboo around here it really yeah. is I mean McDonald's has introduced a happy meal with 9mm <laughs> guns in them for children it's just... I mean, you know, baby's first Derringer is a thing. Right. Like, it is a very popular toy around here. I, I, again, I don't know how many listeners we have from uh, from other parts of the world, but, I mean, it, it, it yeah. happens. It's okay, but jokes aside... <laughs> Wait, we were joking? <laughs> but, but, I mean, we're kind of not. Like, I grew up in hunting culture, and so it is... Um, mm-hmm. I, I've never owned a gun. I've never hunted. I grew up in a vegetarian home, but like my extended family and the other people around me were big hunters. And so I, I'm aware of it. It was like a big deal to get your first gun when you were like, I would say between six and 10, you know, for hunting. And so like that 
is what I thought was normal. And then I started to like, as an adult, meet people who thought that was very, very strange. So it's, yeah, I can't imagine living somewhere else, you know, like in Paris where people would just would not have them. I mean, it sounds like it's probably very safe. I don't know. Much safer, I would say. I would argue Uh, much. Yeah, I am the East Coast liberal elitist. (laughs) I am the person here. And there were we, you know, I grew up in a suburban town. There were like no guns around. I I do live in a town now in Massachusetts it's a bit more purplish like maybe a bit more cranberry in color um, where there are like a lot of hunters there's a lot of hunting culture there are fish and game clubs I am not someone that is so anti-gun where I think nobody should have them right. like ban all guns and if you own a gun then what you, I'm not someone who necessarily thinks there's a caricature of gun owners where all of them leave them unlocked and let no. their children juggle with bullets. I would argue that the vast majority of gun owners, like a very, very high percentage of gun owners, want stricter regulation. They want it to be licensed and regulated, much like driving an automobile would be, that they are able to lock up their weapons, that they are able to safely store them, and that they teach their children proper handling of these mm-hmm. weapons and te- and give it the respect and teach them to give it the respect that it's due like how dangerous it can be that would be about 95% maybe even higher like 98% of the persons that own guns it's unfortunate that that 2% ten- a tends to be the loudest yeah. and b that's still a lot of persons yep Mm-hmm. And with, ha- you know, it's not too difficult to get them, so you can just decide to do that all of a sudden. Whereas, like, someone right. who grew up in hunting culture and was taught gun safety protocols and does have a really safe way to store them and understands that, that's a different whole vibe. So I'm with yes. you on that, Mike. Yeah. So I don't don't want to see the whole, like, oh, they hate guns. Like, no, not necessarily. It's not that, but I just think that there needs to be realistic and real conversations about okay how do we keep them out of the wrong person's hands and i don't want to hear it's a constitutional right because that's just stupid the constitution was meant to be amended and ratified so it can be changed Mm -hmm. for any reason at any time so let's not let's not use that as a crutch please and thank you yeah so anyway all that goes to say it starts to that experience living overseas starts to kind of change the way that DeMonico looks at his relationship to violence and the American relationship to violence. Um, There's a near car accident that he and his wife are in that inspire the idea of having one night with no rules. And I have a little quote here uh, from an article I believe was on IndieWire where he says, uh, and he's, this is around the time he's talking about the third movie and he talks about what inspired the first film. He says, my wife and I were in a road range incident in Brooklyn where we were cut off by this drunk guy who almost killed us. Cops showed up. It was crazy. She said in anger, and this is a doctor who helps people, I wish we could all have one free one a year. And I was like, whoa, honey. And it stayed with me. And that's a powerful thing, right? I mean, I'll ask you both. I mean, we're not free of our impulses from that, right? Mm-mm. 
not at all. It's about, you know, managing them and controlling them. Like, that's kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. That's, you know, that's impulse control. Mm-hmm. That's that's the name of the game. And I think, you know, I think the more we as a society veer away from the, from our willingness to control those impulses, I think the more dangerous we become in general. Um and I think that this movie does a really good job of kind of pinpointing that. Like you, you control your impulses, but one night a year, fuck it, mm-hmm. out the window, impulse control, be damned, do what, do what you want. It's like a cheat day. Do what you feel. <laughs> it is, mm-hmm. yeah, the ultimate yeah. cheat day, um, in a really terrifying mm-hmm. way. And um, yeah, that's I. And I think this movie really does a good job of exploring the horror in on, on a. And again, it's a micro budget movie, so it's it's kind of on a very micro scale, but we're able to really, for this one family specifically, dig into the horror of just that concept. Even even if you're doing everything right, even if you're saying everything you're supposed to be saying, one act of humanity puts a puts you in the crosshairs of very dangerous people unwilling to control their own impulses. Mm-hmm. And you know, you you pull up at a stoplight and you see the the person panhandling and you you see the uh, their their bag and you're like i could probably grab that bag when the light turns green and they never know like you would never i would never do that but like the, the th- you entertain the thought for half a second and you're like damn i'm fucked up like you know like i i would i would never do that i cannot make that clear enough i would not do that but like you, could i get away with it i think you're yeah, denying it a little bit too much i think you're denying yeah me thinks i just protest too much yeah um but no, I mean, you know, that, but that's, I mean, everybody has thoughts like that that you allow yourself to entertain for half a second before you're like, no, because at the end of the day, as, as a certain subset of fans are very fond of saying, we live in a society. Well, to quote George Costanza, one of the great political philosophers, we're living in a society, people. That's it. That's it. And yeah. And, and that at the end of the day, that's what it is. And the, the idea that, and again, the backstory of this is really fascinating to me, which is why I'm, I'm excited to dig into this franchise a little more. But how how does society progress to a point where this becomes the way this this complete dissolution of society one day a year? How does that become the way that which we perpetuate that society? Like, I, I find that contradiction really mm-hmm. fascinating. And to me, too, it's this idea of like, well, the other three what I haven't seen these movies wrestle with is the psychological aftermath of the day after. It would be kind of fascinating to see a day after movie where Mm -hmm. you have to kind of wrestle and grapple with like what you did on the night of the purge, or if you were somehow victimized by it, how you recover from the effects of that and why because if there's someone that's perpetuating violence and someone is going to be the victim of violence, whether it's directly or indirectly, why would this remain such a popular activity um, for so many, for so long? Cause see, I think by this movie, it's the sixth one and it seems right. to be growing in popularity. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be fast. I would like to see maybe, well, what happens after the fact? And how, I mean, because again, even for this movie, how do any of these neighbors look each other in the mm-hmm. eye again after after what happens yeah. on, on this night, mm-hmm. you know? Like, they went in with a plan. And when that, when, when that unexpected element 
you know, pretty much ruins their plan. Like they all have to live with each other, mm-hmm. not just with themselves, but with each other after yeah. this, they've seen each other at their lowest points and yeah. How does um, someone's moving? <laughs> Yeah, how, that's all I know. If at you, least someone's moving. If your abyss is sanded at the end of the purge, how mm. many days before your house is on the market? Yeah, right. zero, like right. a half a day. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're posting that listing as soon as humanly mm. possible. Yep. Slightly used security system. It's pretty good. It works ninety nine percent of the time. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's not built for worst case scenario, but we'll leave yeah. that off the listing. Right. And Mike, you said you haven't seen the second or third one yet, right? I I have not yet. Um, I those are two of my favorites, and I think cool. you will get into that a little bit when you watch those. Excellent. Can I just say, that. Ari, my favorite because I listened to all the Phantasm episodes, and I absolutely loved your commentary on all of them. My favorite dynamic that you bring to this is the whole Mike get ready for these <laughs> these movies you've not seen yet, mm-hmm. like just kind of prepping him. And I'm like, as someone who's not seen these either, I'm like, ooh, what? Excellent. I'm getting all excited too. Like, I love that dynamic. I and again, I I'm meeting you for the first time tonight. I just want to <laughs> oh, let you know how you. big a fan I am of 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 what you what you did oh, on those gosh. episodes. Absolutely oh, phenomenal. Oh, thank you so oh, much. My ears are turning red. <laughs> what we've done is I like having Ariane so much as I just picked franchises that she likes. So <laughs> that's she just, true. She doesn't know that she's like part of the crew at this point. She's like, she's oh, a ringer. Oh, I now. elbowed my is. way yeah. in. I said, do saw, so, do the purge, do wrong mm-hmm. turn. Hi, I'm here now. <laughs> and, and me, I'm sitting here okay going, with. Exorcist? Exorcist when? And he's like, we'll get there. We'll get there. Calm down. The <laughs> amount of research I'm going to have to. We, and we, you know what? We Did we talk about this when we did Disenfranchise the other night? Weren't we having this very conversation? We had we had a, 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 a fraction of this conversation. Okay. Yeah. Because, but I'm a Friedkin fanboy. Yeah. So, yeah. I would probably start my research for that series about six months before we do the movies because the first movie itself would be mm-hmm. a two-parter one uh, on the making yeah. of and then one dissecting the movie and then you get into part two which is such a train wreck of a movie that that's also probably going to be just fun to talk yeah. about right the whole john borman yeah. oh i missed the boat let me get in on this yeah. oh wait what am i doing <laughs> and then there are two part fours so you have to mm-hmm. like do each of those on their own legion deserves mm-hmm. a pretty huge and i think you have to talk at least the first season of the TV series, because mm-hmm. it really is a direct sequel to The Exorcist. So that might have to be Patreon. It's, it's a good. direct sequel to the first, and it's really good. Uh-huh. And then uh-huh. there's going to be the David Gordon Green Exorcist. Uh-huh. So we got to time this. So we'll get there. It's one of the big ones. It's a bit intimidating. It is. It's one of the series like that. And, you know, I'm already doing prep for Psycho, and I don't even know when we're going to do it. But I'm like reading everything I can on Hitchcock right now. I am very excited to get into those sequels because mm-hmm. I have been told that they are good, actually. They I've are. never so, seen the Psycho sequels either. So I know uh, I know Brian Kuyper uh, stands for the sequels. And my friend Tucker, I, I said an unkind word about them on an episode of my own podcast. Mm-hmm. And he got he's now our co-host, but he got all up in my business about it so psycho 2 is a minor miracle i've heard that, that and i've never yeah, watched it's a it. minor miracle so three so I'm, gonna, is... I'm gonna hold off and i'm gonna watch them with the rest of the crew when we do that franchise but i'm excited to do that franchise for sure three is a pretty straightforward slasher movie and i've never mm-hmm. seen four 
Um, Bef- okay, we're getting before a little... Before we go back to The mm-hmm. Purge, I just want to say, did you mm-hmm. see Scream Factory announced, I think just today, that they're doing a 4K of Exorcist 3? Ooh. I just saw it today. I want... I want Scream it. Factory needs to stop putting things out because my wallet can't take it. Right. Correct. So I have the Scream Factory Exorcist 3 Blu-ray. Me too, with the Legion awesome. cut. And it's really yeah. cool. So it really is. now I'm going to buy the 4K, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry. I'm gonna I mean, you kind of have to. End no. up buying Texas Chainsaw Massacre for like the 80th <laughs> Yeah, how many copies? Just a whole shelf of them. Anyway. Yep, that's pretty much it. <laughs> sorry. All right. I do want to mention one more like background thing about The Purge before we get more into the movie here. So there is a historical pre- precedent for it. And there actually are a few different things. But this is the one that jumped out. It is called uh, Sat- Saturnalia. And it was a Roman pagan festival that was celebrated for a week, meaning because we're just a bunch of weaklings as Americans. We gave it one day. (laughs) The Romans are like, we can do this shit for a week, baby. December 17th to December 25th. Keep that last date in mind. (laughs) And it was a week where the courts were closed and no one could be punished for property damage or injuring other persons. And the Roman authorities would choose one enemy of the people to represent the Lord of Misrule. And he or she would be in, would be forced basically for a week to indulge in hedonism. Like they would be force fed all sorts of rich foods, all sorts of sweets. They would have all sorts of like sexual trysts for a week. And they would live, you know, pretty hedonistic life. But then at the end of that week, they were ritually sacrificed. So that would be the downside. Like all the that ice like- cream you can eat. <laughs> But but at the end, you die. that is the definition of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Oh, shoot. It, it really is. Yep. So during the 4th century, Christianity is having some trouble converting <laughs> some of the Roman pagans over to their religion. So they're like, you know what? What if we appropriate this festival as our own little recruitment tool and say, like, look, if you want to be Christian, you can have one week to do whatever the fuck you want. And it will be this week. Sure, go ahead. And they promise the pagans, if you convert, you can still enjoy this tradition. And, you know, someone higher up, like a middle manager, probably steps up at a papal meeting and says, like, you know, it's cool and all to have these, like, orgies and, you know, murder sprees. But kind of goes against the tenets of the religion. We really need to kind of rein it back in. And that is when... The 25th is named like the birth date of Christ. Like that's where. So it was like all in leading up to the quote birth of Christ, the Savior as the Redeemer. So I found that like kind of like a really fascinating historical precedent for these things. As as someone who comes from the, the Christian tradition and has studied a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the the history of the tradition. And I love that when the Romans kind of like took over the world from the Greeks, they were just like, look, we can't, we're not going to try to like force you guys to do so. Just, just, you know, follow us, pay your taxes, believe whatever you want. Uh, you, you worship these Greek gods. Fine. We'll just rename them. They have Roman names now, but it's the same gods. Go ahead and worship those. And then Christianity does the exact same thing. Uh, after the the Holy Roman Empire becomes a thing, it's just like, look, I don't know. You, you celebrate a holiday here. I don't know. It's, it's Jesus's birthday now. I don't know. Do what you want. Like it very much that same like lazy, I don't know, fuck it kind of vibe. 
um, that I, as, as, as a lazy individual, I'm like, I can, I can get behind that. I can dig that. I'll say as a recruitment tool, there are definitely worse things than like do whatever you want for at least one mm-hmm. week. Now we call it Fat Tuesday, and it's a precursor to Lent, and it's coming up. Yes. That's true. That is true. Okay. So we're going to get into um, some of the other psychological and economic impacts of like what a real purge would do. But we're going to hold off on that for a minute, and I want to ask, let's dive into the movie first for a little talk about this and then come back to it. What I found really fascinating and it stuck with me is like the opening crawl to the movie. It talks about the premise that it's 2022 unemployment is at 1% crime rates are historically low. uh, And the reason for that is attributed to this perch, which is one night a year where it's a free for all. And then after it lays out the, the, um, what the movie's about, there's a crawl Blessed be the new founding fathers for letting us purge and cleanse our souls. Blessed be America, a nation reborn. And that stuck with me. And I'm not a very religious person. I believe in something. I do believe in the separation of church and state. But what this creed does is it removes God from... You no longer have one nation under God. And if you're not religious, you can say there's a higher power, like believing in something bigger than yourself in in this universe. doesn't necessarily a Christian God, but this is removed. And now you're pledging fealty to a political party. In this case, the new founding fathers, which Mm -hmm. I feel are based upon the tea party, which emerged in 2009, 2010. I mean, you can draw a through line. It's like not even a thinly veiled, representation it's like this is who god remember that simpler time Mm -hmm. (laughs) sorry i i know i just i the fact that it is a simpler time just is i it's really fucked up yeah Yeah, it is sorry feel free to edit that out mike if you no keep that stays in i think we're all on the same page and we think about the halicon days where it was just a bunch of weirdos dressed up like in tea party suits screaming screaming at town hall meetings but not actually trying to overthrow the government i was i was teaching in christian schools at that time too so the government teachers were all you know very excited about this new political movement happening and i'm sitting there going guys seems what we're talking about here Mm -hmm. like i don't like this um yeah and i think one thing that i noticed in on this rewatch of the movie is this that opening crawl becomes the mantra it becomes almost a prayer america is is the deity which again based on the the level of i don't even want to call it patriotism i'll just call it what it is it's jingoism based on the level of jingoism exhibited by the far right and having most of those being the evangelical right um there is this sort of blurring of the line between what is what is it what it is to be an american and what it is to be religious mm-hmm. and they they kind of become the same thing so there is this almost religious devotion to this american ideal without really fully understanding what it is and that's also kind of rooted in this idea of being 
you know, Christian, not really understanding what that is either, because you don't really read the book. You just listen to what your pastor tells you every Sunday and you, you count on them to actually know what they're talking about. And they don't, um, like there's, it's, it's, it's a trickle down fucked up is what it is. Um, and that's the kind of trickle down that works is the trickle down fucked up. Um, and it, it's based on this kind of religious illiteracy, this, this governmental illiteracy, like there's just this, this blanket, as a post-literate society, we're, we're illiterate when it comes to kind of the foundations of how this shit works. And so there's this, this kind of misguided idealism in a way that becomes this almost comes with this almost religious fervor. And so there is kind of no difference between like American patriotism and like radical American jingoism Mm -hmm. honestly and 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 the religion based around it i know people talk about the cult of of trump a lot and that's really kind of where i think a lot of it takes root and and where something like this seems less far-fetched now than it did in 2013 where you're like oh my god can you can you imagine something like that now you're just like I, i mean if they announced it tomorrow i wouldn't be surprised right like it's it's just kind of that's that's kind of how we've progressed over the course of the last 10 years since this movie came out yeah that was so much uh better than what i was gonna say (laughs) i was just gonna say it reminded me of saying the pledge of allegiance in class growing up i don't know if you guys had to do that but yeah i i I definitely had to say the pledge of allegiance growing up and i never thought about what it meant it was just sort of like you do the stuff you do the thing you get to sit down you get to start your day and you do it at the start of the day so we're like all just like kind of settling in and not really paying attention i mean at least i wasn't i don't think other kids were when you're little you just do what your teacher says for you know i mean i always did so I always thought it was like a, a law. I always thought we it was something we had to yeah. do. Yeah. Um, like this is just some and I, I went to a school where we didn't do it every day, but we did it once okay. a week. And so when I when I visited a school where it was done every day, I was like, This is weird. Like it just it struck me as weird because it wasn't what mm-hmm. I was used to, but everyone around me is just like, Oh no, it's just what we do. Now I think so. it's it's weird. Like especially because I've studied the history of the Pledge of Allegiance and it and, and it gets weird. So mm-hmm. that's what the crawl at the beginning Weird reminds how. me of. Um, okay, I feel like I'm going to get it wrong because I don't have it in front of me, but I feel like it ties back to Nazis. Mm-hmm. So. I, I mean, that doesn't, that wouldn't surprise I don't, me. and now I'm like, oh, I don't want to say something wrong on the podcast. So like maybe Google it and, you know, come for me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it has its roots in Nazi stuff. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think that if we if we if we look at rituals in other countries where like there's like school children pledging fealty to like a leader mm-hmm. per se we would look at that from the outside and say that seems really weird and odd and like that is like so, but when it's here in our own country we're like no this is just something we do mm-hmm. um I also like never gave it a thought like why it's a child like you would just stand up you would say this quick little thing and then you would have like your milk and crackers and go about your day. Like mm-hmm. there was no thought being given it in. And I know when I was growing up, like nobody would object to standing up. And I do think there is more 
of that now where kids are, especially as parents, we're like, look, if you don't want to stand for that, my, my wife is vehemently against the pledge, and I'm, I lean more towards her. We've told our daughter, like, if you don't want to stand for it, you don't have to stand for it. Like, that's totally your own they still choice do and it decision. In school? Yeah, they still do it. They do. Some schools still do it. Our school that I work for, I don't think the kids stand for it and do it, but it's played mm-hmm. over the morning announcements okay. every single day. Okay. Um, but we've told our daughter if you ha- if they do offer it, you don't have to. But you think of like one of the in a lot of what we see politically in this country right now, look, it's culture war bullshit that is meant to further divide us mm-hmm. um, and further distract us from problems that are very challenging and very difficult to solve. Yes. And Stephen, I think you hit it when you said like, we're a post-literate society because we lack a lot of like in-depth critical thinking skills at times and want answers spoon fed to us and want the easiest possible answer. It's much easier to run up and, and focus on issues that might evoke a very emotional reaction in us rather than having to tackle things that feel existential in their nature. Like how do we tackle the climate crisis? How do we tackle you know, the energy grid problems that we have? How do we tackle economic, racial, and gender inequality. They're not easy answers. There's something that takes a lot of time and effort and energy to solve, and you need to hear from a lot of different persons whose opinions range across a whole spectrum of ideologies. And who has time for that when it's much easier to say, you know, those sons of bitches are kneeling for the national anthem. How dare they? And that becomes like a very easy point to make and now you can clearly have persons on either side of that there's not a lot of gray area when it comes to a debate like that and we saw especially in and this won't be a donald trump podcast for five episodes but i do feel like it's very interesting that like the rise of maga and trumpism tied so closely to this time period as well where it does these movies feel very prescient and in the later movies you see with with the first purge and you tied directly into magaism and with the forever purge you see it tied directly into uh migration policies that were enacted in the uh 2018 2019 2020 so it's kind of impossible to not talk about those things so right so yeah, I, I just found like it was interesting to see this, like we're going to say fealty to this political party and you think, well, that will never happen. And three years later, you have, and part of it is the, there's the sunken cost psychological effect where right. if you're a person who has invested a lot of time and energy in becoming a MAGA and following Donald Trump, at a certain point, it becomes very difficult psychologically to admit, oh, I was wrong about this. This is a bad person or a bad ideology because then you have to backtrack and look at all of your decisions that have led up to it. So it becomes kind of like a comfort blanket to dig your heels in and say, no, I am riding this 
wave of thought wherever it's going to carry me because to do so otherwise would take a lot of self-reflection I'm just not capable of. I mean, even from a religious standpoint, it, it there's this, at, at least from, from the, the, the Christian perspective, there's this idea that if, if everyone around me is against it, then it must be the right thing to do. Um, because the thing that's popular is not always right. Um, and it, as someone who used to teach the book, it always really frustrated me that there were so many people who were, when I was, uh, when I was in college, uh, a, a fellow student of mine said about another, another student, that guy's not even a Christian. He's just a Republican. And I looked, i there has not been a week that's gone by since 2016 where I've not thought about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just, just the idea, the notion that, well, we're a Christian, so we vote Republican, and this is what the Republican Party is doing. So this must be what we need to do. And even when you open the book and be like, "No, this is wrong for all these reasons," you're just like, "Yeah." I I tried to talk to my parents about this, and my mom's just like, "Well, I just I we need to make sure there's more conservative justices on the Supreme Court." And I'm like, "But do we? Mm-hmm. Is that worth it, really?" Um, that was not a fun conversation to have. I got very mad at my parents in a in a public setting, and I was definitely yelling. <laughs> It was not fun, but I mean, that's, and that's, that's kind of the, the, the reality for it. Like there's this idea of persecution, there's a persecution complex built into Christianity based on the fact that it was written to the, 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 the later half of the text is written to a group of people who are under persecution. So there's this whole notion that, well, if we're being persecuted, we're doing the right thing. And that's not always the case guys. I'm sorry. You know, what's funny. I'm like, we'll do this one in a tight 90. Like this one, like, will we even Sorry. get tonight? No, it's my fault, as as per usual, which is not even my fault. Like, I enjoy talking about movies, so it's not even. No, I, I mean, I always feel great. bad. I'm loving this. Yeah, I'm like, am I bogarting my co-host time? Um, you get, I mean, you get the the religiousy guy on to talk about this shit, and and he's gonna he's gonna have some thoughts. It's I'm awesome. good with it. Here's the other thought I had. Why we we're still in the opening credits, folks? <laughs> um, watching. Watching the opening credits of these movies, like you actually do see the purge in action, and there's like some really harrowing footage there. Like, props to Demonico because like a lot of it looks like surveillance footage. It looks real, yeah. Yeah. Which it looks like. I mean, you're like, where are they pulling this like stock footage from? Right. Was your assumption when you watch that that this is what like the bulk of the movie would be? Not necessarily the camera footage or surveillance camera footage, but you were going to be watching like a jumping from place to place and watching the purge unfold from multiple point of views. And if it was your point of view, were you disappointed when that wasn't, when it ended up being much more of a bottle movie? I mean, I came to it so late that I kind of knew what it was going to be. So I wasn't disappointed because I didn't have that expectation. But I totally could see that being the case if you go in with no knowledge of what it's going to be. And it starts with that. Yeah, I and exactly the same. I think what it's intended to do. And again, whether or not this is setting an incorrect expectation or not, I'll leave to to others to discuss. But I think what it what it actually succeeds in doing is building the world. so, so you're like, this is, you, you've told me what the purge is. Now I get to actually see past instances of the purge as it's folded out over the course of the last five years. And so now I get to see what it actually, you know, looked like leading up to this year. And now that I have a context for what that is and the kind of violence and the kind of atrocities that are 
permissible and forgivable and perfectly legal, um, now I'm in the right headspace to understand what this story, what the, the, the level of violence that this story is going to be dealing with and engaging with. So I guess that's how I kind of looked at it. Got it. Okay. I think I came from it like thinking that, like I know it would focus on Ethan Hawke and his family, but thought we would see a bigger world. Mm. And again, it's been like a decade since I first watched the movie. So it's a little bit difficult to remember if how completely how I felt about this, but I feel like I remember coming away from it a little bit disappointed that it was so focused on this one family and feeling like I wanted more of these these those opening moments. I wanted more things like that throughout the movie to kind of pop in. But then found like in the later two movies I watched where it is a bit more of that, where it does jump. And the television show as well. The television show tries to show this event from multiple points of view. That I'm like, actually, I do think I prefer the smaller more scaled back version of it where we can focus on just one family. Cause I think where this movie is really effective is that first 24, 25 minutes of the movie, everything leading up to uh, the son seeing the soldier running away, trying to escape and crying for help where mm-hmm. you have this like very surreal juxtaposition of a family, very wealthy, well-to-do family enjoying a family dinner and having like your typical family issues like the kids are cursing at the table and the daughter is sneaking her boyfriend in who's not accepted by mom and dad and there's a bit of tension between mom and dad because dad's a bit of a you know like everybody look at me and what I do that Mm -hmm. kind of like typical family problem versus the underlying fear that okay something very bad could possibly go down tonight that tension of knowing what's going to come as soon as those sirens hit yeah i love the start of the movie because it's like you know it's coming you know it's coming and then they're they're in the middle of dinner and i think it's charlie who goes look what time it is and it's like four minutes to seven and they're kind of like okay okay you know we gotta huddle up and like go watch the announcement or whatever and it felt really scary to me in that moment because they sort of know what's coming, but it kind of reminded me of like when the tornado sirens go off and you're like, okay, drop whatever you're doing and go downstairs. Um, but like they knew it was coming all day. So they've just been like sitting with that leading up to it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think it's, it's more of that great world building. Like we've now seen the larger, broader world and now we're now taking a more, in-depth and kind of incisive look into where the rest of our story is going to focus and what is it what does a normal day look like for them leading up to this event that we've been promised is going to be this kind of horrific free-for-all um and so it 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 it's good to see what their normal life is like because then we know exactly to what extent it can and will be disrupted as a result of of this one evening uh, which again, I find all of that very, particularly the, the the shit with the neighbors is the stuff that I'm just like, mm, like I'm the whole movie. I'm thinking, and I I forget about the neighbors until they show up at the end, and then I'm like, oh, but they are help. Oh no, oh no, like that whole thing. Like I think that's going to be the movie. The neighbors trying to take the house, and then it 
it goes off in a completely different direction. I completely forget about the neighbors and the neighbors circle back and you're like, oh, even even still they're helping. Oh, no, they're not helping. Oh, shit. And it's exactly the thing I thought was going to happen the whole time that I forgot about. Like it. Oh, this yeah. movie's so great. Like it, it sets up the pieces and then just knocks all those dominoes. Right. down. And it's really phenomenal to watch it happen. I agree. And I was just thinking with the anticipation of what's to come, the only thing I could liken it to recently, about two weeks ago, we had that near historic cold front Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. hit most of the country. And where I am from, we were getting, it gets cold here in the winter, but it doesn't get that cold. We are looking at like negative 20, negative 30 degrees. And we had a good five or six days of anticipation of knowing it was going to be that cold for two days. And I just remember in the lead up to it thinking like, will we have school the day before or will they can't like, will I actually get an off day without a snow day? And like thinking about that over and over and what will I do on that day? Like, will we throw out extra blankets? Will I just watch movies? What, you know, do we have enough food this week? And just what is it going to be like to be in this level of cold? And then it comes and you're like, okay, now we're in the middle of it right now. What it would be like anticipating like that right before the run up in the days before. Okay, what violence could break out in this area right now? Will it be my neighbors? Will somebody try to break in? Will someone I know or love be affected by this? And what that anticipation might be like and how that might weigh on someone psychologically. What do you, we both all think of this idea? Because this movie, the focus on the Sandin family is they are very well-to-do. Like, they're one percenters. So we are watching the events unfold from the perspective of a very well-to-do, very well-off family that we're asked to root for. And I, the idea, I guess, is supposed to be this could happen to anybody. Like, nobody is going to be untouched by this violence but we also live in an era now where like i have posted guillotine gifts i have definitely yelled eat the rich (laughs) and i found it not impossible to because i don't think they're an unlikable family and i think that like ethan hawk's character works pretty hard for the fit life that he's built Though it's probably pretty easy to sell security systems, you <laughs> know that's pretty good gig in the world to of have. the purge. Yeah, pretty it, good gig it, to have. Doesn't seem difficult, right? But once you but sell them think... to all the houses who need them, then what do you do? That's what I was thinking about. Like this is going to fall off at some point, but upgrades. Oh, I guess. See, that's why I'm yeah. not in business because I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how any of it works. I just know, look, there's always a market for this shit. We subscriptions. We make them feel unsafe. And here's the thing. They broke into this house where that had these security systems. So now upgrades are essential because you better believe that story is getting out. You better believe people are going to hear about that. Like the uh, he's he's gone. So unfortunately, it's not going to be him. But someone else at his firm, you better believe that they're going to be like farming upgrades out and, and, you know, designing a safer system and getting those on the market before. And that's why. Like, you know that's going to happen. That's why this episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, read that ad copy real quick. We just literally had this evening. My wife booked, and it's the one day I left my phone in my car, because I would have been like, please don't have them come tonight. It's Friday. Our house is a mess, and we're both very tired after a long week. 
we had someone come we didn't have book to quote us like we need to replace our windows at some point in the next year we know it and a piece of the vinyl siding has come off the house so we need to replace that one one strip so he came and gave us a quote that is more than I have in my daughter's college fund right now. Like it would pay Windows for Windows are ridiculous right now. And they are. But it was like our house is a modest middle class mm-hmm. home. Like we, you know, not a fixer upper, but close to it. And this guy comes in and he, and he wouldn't get off his pitch. I'm like, look, just give me a price. I don't need a pitch. I'm exhausted. I'm not listening to a word <laughs> you're saying to me right now. All I know is I know I need new windows. We know it. That's why we called you. He goes, well, I have to tell you why. And I'm like, okay, I am going to ignore. I go, I guess that's what you're going to do. I'm just going to go cook dinner. And he gave us a price where I'm like, just almost started to laugh. I'm like, dude, do you look where you are right now? Like, what are you right. thinking? Like, he's like, well, the average window is like 600 bucks, but we're way above the average. Oh, great. Fantastic. Cool. Can you give me the number of the people who do the average <laughs> yes. or even better? Below yeah. average, give me maybe? below we're average like, Windows Inc. Subpar Windows Incorporated. Yes, he's please. Like, but you don't want to go to like a Lowe's or a Home Depot because like it won't be any difference at all. I'm like, wait a minute. So I desperately need to replace my windows or my house might collapse is what you're saying. But if I replace them with new ones that aren't yours, it won't make a difference at all. Like, which one is it, dude? And then they wouldn't replace one strip of siding. It was going to be like the whole oh, house. Oh, for goodness and I'm like, sake. You know I they just don't need this one. That. It was like ten grand, and I'm like, for just that? And I'm like, so 9800 bucks for one strip of siding? They're like, no, we have to do all this, this, this. I'm like, yeah, we're not doing that, dude. We're Here's not. the thing. You don't, though. You, you really don't. don't. You so, don't. It was a near purge situation, except it had to do with windows, like double pane windows. Did you tell us what um, your purge crime would be? Because I think it should be stealing windows. It would be stealing. <laughs> or um, at least vinyl siding. Yeah, why not both, man? You got 12 hours. I mean, part of me is like sure? I would I would knock off an ATM and just bankroll it for my daughter's education, like at Baver, mm. all of her college, and she'd have no loans. Oh, that's lovely. That's like that the nice so part of it. The other part, I do work in a K through eight school as a counselor, and there are some dumb children. Um, there's like definitely a sixth grader today. I said someone's going to punch you soon, <laughs> and I am going to I am going to lobby for that kid to get a pass because you're an awful kid. Something to that because he's just a bully. I mean, and- I've it a lot i've never actually said it yeah to a kid. it takes a lot for me to get and again i am the kind cuddly cuddly counselor that everyone comes to because 99.9 percent of the time i am that cuddly person but this kid was like he called a kid stinky and then pretended to faint when this when he walked by him it's and rude. i'm like no it's super Uncool. rude and this is like not the first time if you told anyway. me mike if you told me i deserve to be punched i would believe it like that's who you are like I, I, you could take a person's heart and, out and show it to them that's what i think i don't think you deserve that well, though i think you deserve to be listened to and respected. well thank you but i'm just saying i trust you and so if you i on the other hand <laughs> steven i like a lot too everyone on this show is is aces as far as i'm concerned so otherwise we wouldn't be here right? you would not be you here. don't invite punchable um, people to the show <laughs> i try not to i really do try to go out of my way to like kind of curate the people that we speak to and work with. Um, because I that think being that being said, it, he's got some stories off mic. 
<laughs> do we? I actually I don't some. I don't know. I'm just saying. I do have some. Um but by and large, like it's been a very it's been a very chill group of people to work with, which is really nice. Um so this was a long way to ask, what do we think of the idea of focusing on this one percenter family? And is it harder to empathize with them now? I think on some level it is, but what I think this movie does very well is it it kind of peels back everything and shows you the bare humanity on every level. Uh, and I mean, for all of its good and all of its evil, like it just kind of lays everything bare. Like, again, it's it's an act of humanity that even gets them in the crosshairs of, of the purgers anyway. Like, so you see the good of it. Um, and you see, you see the fact that they're willing to do something terrible. It, like it's that decision. Like, will you, how far were you willing to go to protect your family? And they're willing to give this man over to certain death. And for his part, he's like, "You got to do what you do. You got to do for your kids." Like I understand. Like hand me over. And at that point, he doesn't want to anymore. And so you you see these people become decent and become human. And and that's kind of when everything is legal, the one rev- radical revolutionary act is just being a decent fucking yeah. human. Legal and more showing compassion. The difference between something being legal and something being moral and ethical are that's two it. different yeah. things or completely different arguments. Yeah. And I think that's what this movie does really well is I think at the beginning, you're like, how do I empathize with these, you know, rich proto or I guess uh, post yuppies. And by the end of the movie, like you, you do you're 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 on their side because you've fucking been in the shit with them for the last 90 minutes right or like 85 minutes or however long this movie is like yeah you've you've been in the shit and you're you're willing to to come along with them yeah because i don't think james is a flim flam artist like i don't think he's someone that is out there selling like i don't get the impression that he's selling security systems that he knows aren't gonna work like he's just very honest like look they're a deterrent and you see if you're a criminal or you're someone that wants to get in somewhere, if you see some sort of halfway decent security system, unless you're absolutely determined to get in there, you're going to move on to a much easier target. And to bring up kind of like what we call Alice training, which we do in schools now, it's why they talk about like barricading doors and moving as far away from them. Because any sort of give or any sort of like pushback where someone can't get into the room well, there's like a hundred other doors. I'll try one of those. Grim fucking thing to say, I know, but it's why we kind of like talk about it. You're going to go somewhere where there's less resistance. It's like, sure, like plenty of security here, but where there's a will, there's a way. There's like always something that could be done. Nothing is going to be like, it's not Fort Knox at the end of the day. It's a home system, not Fort Knox, right? Um, So I don't think he's like this, like, I don't think he's selling magic beans no. is what I mean to say. Right. What you mentioned the you mentioned the dilemma that the family faces like do we give up this person or do we potentially all die because it's the right thing to do. What do we think of this moral dilemma at the center of the movie like what would you do in a situation like this? Dude, this is the most, like, fucked up version of the trolley problem. And I've never Mm -hmm. done well with the trolley problem. (laughs) Um, 
I don't, I don't know. Like, so loyalty is really important to me. And so I feel like I would do anything for the people that I love. So part of me is like, yeah, I would throw a stranger to the wolves for my family. But then also part of me is disgusted for even considering that. So, I mean, I definitely feel for the family in this movie, and I do empathize with them because, like, you know, the kid, Charlie, lets in the bloody stranger, the soldier, and he's just trying to do the right thing. He's a little kid. He doesn't know. And now his parents are stuck cleaning up his actions, which is totally how it is when you're a parent. You clean it up after your kid's dumb actions. Same with the daughter. We'll get into that. And, like... Earlier in the movie, they're talking to him about, like, well, we don't participate because we don't want to. And it's, like, this question of, like, well, you know, Charlie's asking without asking, like, is it okay to participate in the purge? And they don't really give him an answer. So I have no idea what I do. I feel like, first of all, I wouldn't be in the super secure house. (laughs) I could tell you that for free because I wouldn't have any money. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. That's a non-answer, but it's honest. I mean, I would like to think that I would do the right thing, but I also, again, if I've established one thing on this episode, it is that I am a coward. Um, And I would probably do something horribly cowardly uh, if I'm being really honest with myself. Um, Do I like that about myself? No, but that's, I mean, and and again, that's, that's the dilemma. Like, and I, it's, it's, it's a Kobayashi Maru to, to reference a franchise that neither of you are that familiar with, Star Trek. But I know that um, thing. It's, so. it's the... I'm with you. Okay, yes. you know. Well, at least you know the Kobayashi Maru. That's I have like no idea. That's like twenty percent. It's a classic no win scenario. I thought you meant Kobayashi, like the, the hot, hot dog, dog eater contest eating person. Yeah. No, actually, I was talking about the Pete Postlethwaite's character from The Usual Suspects. Okay. No. Um, um, but no, the Kobayashi Maru is the, is the no win situation. It's the no win scenario, and it's a it's a training exercise in Starfleet Academy, so that people who are in command training know that there are some situations that are unwinnable, um, and that's and that's what this is. Like it's a no win situation. You're da- you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. But either way, you're mm-hmm. damned. Yeah. Um, and and the minute you again, the minute you do that very human, altruistic thing of letting this person in desperate need of assistance as soon as you let them into your home you have you have invited the no-win situation you have invited that upon yourself and because charlie does this now this is the decision that ethan hawk is forced to make for his family and i think the entire movie then folds out of the Mm -hmm. consequences of that one act of humanity which is again that's the most revolutionary thing that you can do in the midst when when everything's legal decency is is the ultimate sin yeah in a vacuum i know that like my daughter's life is not inherently worth more than a stranger's life like all things being equal removing myself from the equation those two lives are equal lives but i don't live in a vacuum i live in a world where there are people that i love that are people that i'm close with that are people that i'm task to care for and to raise and you know that i i don't know what i would do without so in a, in a situation where it's like do i choose my daughter or the stranger it, i think it would not be a difficult decision to be like i am sorry but and i could justify that from like i don't know what it would be like to not be without that person if that makes me 
inherently a worse person, then yeah, I understand that. I do think I would probably try to find a alternative, which is, hey, you seem like you might know how to handle a handgun. We are loaded for bear here. Why don't we take these fuckers out? Let's try that route, if that might be the route we have to go. That might be the route we would try. That being said, like, I've never handled anything more deadly than a steak knife um, and a sharp tongue. Like, those are my two (laughs) weapons of choice. So I don't know how useful I would be. But I think that, like, if I had to choose one or the other, I'd always choose my family over the other. Now, my wife might not. My wife is famous for asking if the life insurance is up to date. (laughs) I mean, that's just practical at that point. You know, someone Mm -hmm. has to make sure (laughs) the paperwork's in order. She also takes notes during true crime shows. We better not fuck up. Just saying. Just like, oh, please. Like, she could do better than this. Um, I joke. Um, I want to ask about Henry. A little bit, because I don't know what his end game here. And I think this gets to like that Mm. question I was asking about earlier. Like, what about the next day? Like Henry, unbeknownst to his girlfriend, Zoe, is not going to go and say, like, here's why I think you should let me date your daughter. But he's going to just try to kill, like, cut out the middleman and be like, I'm going to kill your dad and then we can date happily. What does he think is going to happen? Like, what does he think the next day is going to look like? when it's 7 a.m. and the purge is over. I just don't get this. Like, you can cut him from this movie completely and nothing changes. That would require forethought on his part, and I don't think this is this is the kind of person who thinks things through. Like, he's, we get the idea that he's significantly older. Like, he's probably a college student dating a high schooler. Um, so there's probably some significant age difference there. Like, he even does the you're so mature for Ugh. your age kind of thing. And I'm, he, like, he, he says that to her, and I'm just like, Oh, it's the reddest oh, dude, flag. Like, mm-hmm. In this like movie full of uh-huh. of red flags, like <laughs> the biggest ones are flying off of Henry in those moments. Yeah. Like Ariel, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Feel free, but has anyone ever used that line? With Most you? definitely. Okay. Oh. And how did that line go over? It went over great because when you're a teenager, you don't have good sense. Okay. Nothing gets you know. Sorry, mom, if you're listening to this, but like it worked, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like that's it's meant to trick you. And it does because you're a teenage girl and you don't have good sense. Excellent. I was just curious. So <laughs> sorry, Stephen. <laughs> no, that's fine. But no, I, I mean, no, I, I don't think Henry has a plan other than I, I think, honestly, I think he's got kind of a. Um, a natural born killers kind of idea in his head. Like I'll, I'll do this and then we'll run away and we'll just be together and nothing else will matter. Like, I think that's literally the extent of his plan. Um, He, he clearly is not the, a young man who's thought things through. Um, So like he's, he's in a, enough of a state of arrested development that he's running after girls that are significantly younger than him. Um, So I think there's, again, this is not a young man who, who has thought anything through up to this point, other than his immediate impulses in this particular moment. Do you think this is the first time that this particular neighborhood has had direct contact with like a purge situation? I 
get that sense, yeah. Because um, they refer to the purge party that one of the neighbors usually has. Oh, are you having your annual purge party? And it makes it sound like, it, it made me think of the Super Bowl, like this thing that's happening away from us, that's a cultural phenomenon that we're going to get together and we're going to watch and we're going to experience, but we're not really a part of it. So I feel like it hasn't really touched them before. Right. He even says at one point, like this, this kind of thing doesn't happen. Yeah. Mm hmm. Like you, you kind of get the direct idea. Like this is this is their first purge. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, it's not the first purge that they've witnessed, but it's the first purge that they've been a part of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even when you get the shot of the man sharpening like his machete in the backyard, you get that like you're watching it, like that voyeuristic shot from the backyard. You get the impression that like they're going to take the violence outside of the neighborhood. Like they're not going to prey on their mm-hmm. neighbors. Like it's not going to be a Rand Paul situation where your neighbor gets like fed up with Rand Paul shit. And that man is a hero by the way. And he's going to like go, you're not going to settle the scores on purge night with your neighbors over like lawn clippings or not picking up someone's dog poop in the yard. Like you're going to take your machete. You're going to take your weapons and you are going to go, if you're going to purge at all, you're going to do it elsewhere. You're going to leave you don't the shit where you eat. Exactly. That's kind of the idea that I got and I was wondering if like the you know the strangers that we see like the masked purgers are they part of this community like is this their neighborhood is this their community or are they interlopers in it because they're obviously on the same socioeconomic status as the rest of the neighborhood but are they apart from or outside of it I got the sense they were from outside of it they know their names, though. And I don't know if it's, like, on the mailbox or what, but they, they knew the name. They knew Mr. and Mrs. Sanders. Well, they went names. to the other houses first and learned where they're the bloody stranger that they were hunting. They went to the other houses who said, hey, he's in the Sandins' house. Mm-hmm. At least gotcha. that's what he claims. The the polite leader, I think he's credited. Yeah. I mean, polite. these guys strike me as, like, young Republicans yeah. or you know hitler youth or something like just you know the clean-cut college kids who were like a little too into like free enterprise right um like that that's kind of the impression that i get off of these off of these kids yeah if you set the warriors in greenwich connecticut instead of the bronx like this would be who this would be who you would see right (laughs) holy shit that's amazing yeah so which now i want to see that movie right um Hey, warriors, come out for your tea party. Um, Would you care to play? Excellent. So, yeah, I I feel they feel like they're trying to talk to them on their level. Like, look, we're both the same. Obviously, we're above this. And Mm -hmm. it is our they view like these young these young where you see the sand is really wrestling with what do we do here? You know, like we're going to send him out to die, but we feel really bad of it. And to your point, Stephen, it's not until he says, do it for your kids. It's not until they're given permission to do it. Okay, now you have our approval, my approval to do this morally indefensible thing. And that's what makes it so much more real. Like, oh, now I can go through with it. Now I don't want to anymore. Mm -hmm. Which to me, part of the appeal is the... It's illicit. It's, you know, deep down, you know that 
it's not something you're supposed to do. It's the transgressive nature of the thing. And they've tried to dehumanize him so much, you know, tie him to the chair, gag him, get him outside. They're talking about him like he's cargo or like, you know, Mm -hmm. an Amazon package or something. But when... The character doesn't even have a name. No, bloody stranger. And so when he says, do it for your kids, well, now you can't deny his humanity anymore. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because he's shown you now in this, like in these two Mm -hmm. moments, more humanity than you've shown him the entire fucking movie. Right had a note here at the audio and we talked a little bit about this like bringing it to the doorstep and i listened closely to some of the audio at the end of the movie when they're playing the newscast Mm -hmm. and it's pretty chilling things because it is spoken about like the event is spoken about how we would have just talked about the super bowl or how we would talk about black friday sales after thanksgiving it's an epic event, like, oh, the largest one ever. The preliminary numbers are in. We had over 200 people purging at once in one square in Dallas. Like, isn't this wonderful? So it's celebrated like sport. And it kind of like it ties into my idea of like part of the reasons why politics is so difficult right now is we cover politics like a horse race like there's clear winners and losers and it's not about digesting ideas but who had the best soundbite mm-hmm. who looked best on stage who's articulating right. their point of view and we're covering it like we would a horse race rather than something that has real consequences like whatever side gets to choose or gets to implement their ideas it's going to impact hundreds of millions of persons I think that's why I really like the microcosm look and, and feel of this movie is because it does make it real. Like, I think if we'd had the like larger scope of like a movie that's kind of traveling through and visiting different purge locations, it kind of deadens that impact a little bit. But we see it like the, we're, we're with this one group of people in this one place in this one night. And then what the footage at the beginning and what the audio at the end kind of tells us is this is not an isolated incident. The horrors that you saw here are literally happening all over the country and it's accepted and it's approved of and it's seen as a good thing. Like everyone's like, think about the good Mm -hmm. that the purge does. Like it, we do this so that we don't have to do deal with crime for most of the rest of the year. Like violent crime is way down. Mm -hmm. Why? Because there's a purge. Like think of the good that it does for our society. And that's why we condone it. Like the evils that we're willing to, to accept because it makes our lives a little easier for a moment or two, like the things that the, the atrocities that we're willing to accept and the ones that we aren't. Um, And I think again, this small genre movie is able to, to really, kind of focus our attention on those things better than I think a straightforward discussion of these things would. And one of the things you just said there, like think of all the good the purge does that that is a line that Mrs. Sandin in particular says a number of times in the movie, think of all the good it does. And it's, it's not something that you say and give any real thought or depth to. It's something that you're conditioned to say, and you don't really even believe it, but you're like, I will just empty this, offer this empty platitude to my kid because I don't have any real words of comfort to offer. And if I had to really sit down and wrestle with the implications of what this night means, my head would explode. So I'll just say the most basic empty soundbite 
as a means to maybe end the conversation. Yep, 100%. The last bit of the audio before the music to the credits roll is there's one man who says, I lost both of my sons tonight. The purge took them from me. I was a proud American, but no more. This country has taken everything from me. Mm -hmm. And it made me again, like just with this movie, like now the violence is right at their doorstep. It's actually come through the home. It's burst through. Now it's, it's no longer like an intellectual exercise. It's something that this family has to confront in a very real way. Same with this man who's talking about, I lost my two sons. Like the purge was all well and good for everybody else. Like it cleared out the neighborhood of the poors. It, um, got rid of the riffraff it got rid of the people the ne'er-do-wells and it was great for everybody all those people could suffer but the moment that it becomes real to me well geez maybe this is a bad thing and it's because of maybe a lack of empathy that we have things only feel real when we experience them directly and i think that goes back to your point Stephen, of like a society with very poor media literacy and also maybe a a society that doesn't put as much value in literature in art in music in film because i think the beauty of art the true beauty of art especially with film and especially with literature is you it allows us to experience points of view and worldviews and culture that are so far outside of our own and understand that human experience and empathize with it in a way that we may not be able to do otherwise. And to me, that is at the root of like, why are these books being removed from classrooms in Florida? It has nothing to do with teaching dangerous ideas. It has everything to do with teaching empathy. It has Mm -hmm. everything to do with teaching points of view that exist outside of our own experience because we always have a need to have an other. We always have a need to demonize some subculture of persons or some segment of persons and deny them their few, their full personhood. And it's through literature, it's through music, it's through art, it's through film that we gain a deeper experience. And that's why those things need to be removed. And then and it's easier rant. to... No, Sorry. no, no. Go, Go ahead. ahead. No, oh, I, I was just going to say it's easier to unite people against something than it is in service of that something. That is true. But... And what were you going to say? Um, you know, I know we probably don't want to talk about COVID too much, and so I won't, no, I won't ahead. harp on me, this point. Of course point. we can. Do well, it. By all means, please. Um, we did a whole month on COVID and psychoanalysis. We're not I know, and it was it very cathartic for me, and thank you for doing that. Um, I need to watch The Harbinger. So good. I need to watch it. So watching this during COVID lockdown, I couldn't help but think about it. And there are lots of examples of this idea of it doesn't matter to me until it shows up on my doorstep. I remember going through the Holocaust Museum in Chicago and there's like this plaque where it's like first they came for these people and I wasn't one of these people. And then and it goes through all these different people. It's like and then they came for me and there was no one left to say anything. And like that, yeah, I cried when I saw that. Like that hit me really hard. And that's what we're talking about. And with COVID, I saw that a lot where 
so someone very close to me is immunocompromised and so we had a hard time going through COVID just trying to like figure things out and keep things safe and um a lot of people just sort of seem to be like I don't care about this or I don't believe in this or I'm not going to take precautions until it became a problem for them and I'm not talking about people who had to go to work, had to go to school, had to put their kids in daycare. Like, I'm not talking about people who didn't have mm-hmm. choices to make. I'm talking specifically about people who are like, I don't believe this. I'm not going to acknowledge this until it became real for them. And so when I was watching The Purge for the first time while all that was going on, I was kind of like, I need to talk to someone right now because I was like, I can't process this. It just felt so super duper real. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. That's a great point. No, I think that is yeah. a really good point. It wasn't until, and we see it on social media, yeah. the fuck around and find yes. out. And there's a, I know, and it's a part of me that I don't like, but there's a part of me that took joy in seeing the contrast in one post of like, this is stupid. You're a bunch of sheeple. I did my own research, fake virus, fake news. And then like, hey, this person is either hospitalized in ICU or has even died from, you know, my take was like, okay, I have no sympathy for that person. And I don't necessarily like that part of myself, but it exists and it's there for me to wrestle with. Schadenfreude is, a, is it, it feels really good in the moment, but when you take a step back and, and have to reckon with it, not always a good look. No. I have some stuff here on what the economic and psychological effects of the purge would be. Why don't we do one of them tonight? Let's do, because I I think that we're going to get more and more into Mm -hmm. this. So I'm going to have a little bit more on what the economic impact of the purge, because the whole idea behind or the whole spark behind the purge is that it's going to stimulate the economy it's going to, and I guess if there are less people to work, then your number will go down by nature. Like if you kill off X amount of the population in one night, then those jobs still need to be filled. Maybe that's one of the drivers of the economy. Yeah. Maybe that keeps unemployment yeah. down. Yeah. The, the stated idea is like if we get, if we have this cathar- cathartic event where for one night, all of our anger, all of our sense of injustice all of our feelings come out we can do whatever we want then the rest of the year will be fine and we'll talk more about why that is a lark why that is not the case in future episodes but found a really good article on forbes uh why a real life purge would be terrible for the economy by jeff ewing and you know forbes magazine is not necessarily it's not like a bastion of like liberal thought like it's not like this liberal think tank that is you know saying like how dare so there's a few different points that uh jeff made in his article here number one you see the division between the wealthy and the poor throughout these movies and you focus on it here you have like a very wealthy community um the wealthy like this whole neighborhood they were all able to afford these very high-end high-tech security systems their homes by their nature are going to be more secure they're going to be more off limits and the wealthy are going to be able to better protect themselves and withstand that night of the purge If they choose to go out and purge, well, 
they're more able to afford not only can they keep themselves locked down but they can afford better firepower i mean you see what ethan hawk is pat he's packing a mini bazooka slash shotgun like that is a Mm -hmm. badass weapon that he has it was enough to rival reggie's uh you know quad the quad gun Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh reggie bannister would feel right at home in the i need that crossover event now oh my goodness um but they can afford the more expensive firepower whereas vulnerable communities the poor those that are in mass housing where you have like maybe one door with a single lock that divides you from the street the unhoused community the working class like they're not going to be able to afford to protect themselves these communities are going to get hit the hardest but also within these communities essential workers providers small businesses and other essential services they're going to be attacked they're going to be non-operational or severely hindered in cleanup efforts so you're going to have not just this one night where your business closes just because you kind of have to in a case like this but the amount of cleanup that has to be done Mm -hmm. now if you're a small business that's been ransacked you're not going to have the means in order to function and that's going to create a further divide in your community between the wealthy and the poor. Um, Purging is not going to satisfy the wealthy for a year in terms of like, okay, we got everything out of our system. Now we're going to commit no more violent acts for this year. No, like there's in our, there's a argument for what they call institutional economics. And it makes an argument that the institutions that we put in place, whether it's, government, economic, structural systems that we have, all of these things shape our habits and they produce common and repeatable behaviors that drive our daily lives. And I found this article, What Are Institutions, uh, by an institutional economist, Jeffrey Hodgson. And he argued, by structuring, constraining, and enabling individual behaviors, Institutions have the power to mold the capacities and behaviors of agents in fundamental ways. They have a capacity to change aspirations instead of merely enabling or constraining them. So depending on your socioeconomic status and what backing you have behind you, that's going to shape your behavior for a year. So if you're really rich and you're really wealthy and you have all of these means at your disposal, one night a year to act out isn't going to be enough. Number one, because this night actually rewards purging the poor from society, so you're going to be rewarded for continuing to do so. Or at the very least, the elite will turn a blind eye to your actions and you will not suffer consequences for your action. Um, Insurance premiums in marginalized communities, like just owning a home, owning a business, owning an automobile, your insurance is going to be at a much higher, higher rate. And to your point, Ariel, I think you in one of the, I read this in the course of this article, like before the purge in one of the movies, like a, a business owner gets a call. Yeah, your insurance just like tripled or quadrupled or something. And you're no longer going to be able to pay those prices where the wealthy will continue to be able to pay at a normal rate because they're going to be more protected. And that's why the idea of a flat tax is always such a dangerous idea and how it benefits the wealthy and really hurts the working class. Because if everyone's paying the same rate, 
If you have 10% of a million bucks, yes, it's a lot of money. You have a lot more money left over to buy goods and services. Um, lastly, small businesses would be decimated due to not being able to afford the insurance rates. Real estate prices in these areas would go up because of the high risk. Security costs to prevent protect your investments, whether it's your home, your car, your business, and the cost of cleanup and replacing the material goods that you need, such as windows, shelving, computer systems, all of those costs are going to impact small business owners in these affected communities after a purge event. And eventually, you're going to probably have to close up shop. So those are some of the reasons why uh, a purge event would be such a awful, awful event. And in future episodes, we'll talk more of the psychology behind the purge. And also we'll talk more about how institutions or how like liberal institutions in particular, having like a state overrun everything is meant to how oftentimes it's used as fear mongering to say, be careful of these others. Mm -hmm. Um, The cartoon that I'm often drawn to, there's a picture of like a, older white gentleman with a huge plate of cookies in front of him and it's obviously very coded as a republican male and he's looking at a working class white male on one side of his table and across from them is uh you know a man with brown skin like an immigrant who has one who has one cookie on his plate and the working class man has one cookie on his plate and you have the older male looking at the white working class guy going be very careful that foreigner he's coming to steal your cookie and meanwhile this man has like 50 in front of him and i think that kind of sums up this kind of economic system in a nutshell Hmm. (sighs) and rant again sorry um that's good stuff man do we have anything else is there anything missing here anything we wanted to cover that we didn't touch on um Two tiny things I wanted to mention. No, go long. Take your time. So the blue flowers that they put out in front of their house to show support of the purge, it's not the same thing, but it reminded me of how after 9-11, a lot of people put American flags up who didn't have them before, just as sort of like a, it was more about showing your neighbors so they wouldn't question you. And that's what it seems like mm-hmm. the blue flowers are, too. Like, you put the blue flowers out, really, because that's what's expected. It reminded me of American flags. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, which is a fun, lighthearted thing, is that it almost completely borrows a shot from the strangers. Mm. There's a scene where, um, and I can't remember which character it is now, but one of the Sandins is in their home and you're looking right at them and then they move and there's a masked perjurer standing behind them and then they kind of move out of the frame and it's almost exactly like that shot in The Strangers where you're focusing on Liv Tyler and, and the like bag face guys in the background. Good catch. Yes. So. This owes a lot to The Strangers, yeah, doesn't it? So. Like the way this movie, which is a, a great, home and because this really is like just a home invasion Mm -hmm. movie like you could remove the purge from this movie and do it as a home invasion movie and you have like a pretty solid horror Mm -hmm. flick oh here's what i wanted to ask you both the neighbors at the end because steven you mentioned them 
their motivations for wanting to purge the Sandins. And I think it ties a lot into the economics. Like these are does, all yeah. very wealthy people. They just don't happen to have as much as the Sandins and they're pissed about it. What do it's we not, think of this? It's not just that they don't have as much. It's that they feel the Sandins have profited off of their good nature or that they've been duped somehow mm-hmm. because he, he, in, in his own has gone to all of his neighbors and sold them all security systems and be and they've they've watched him do it they've watched him go to literally every house in the neighborhood and then based on what he was able to do it's it's a keeping up with the joneses thing right but in this case you can't keep up with the joneses because you're the one giving money to the joneses and now america's got this built-in day where i can do whatever i want and i can get mine back from the joneses and aren't I going to take that opportunity as a kind of wealthy suburbanite? Like, isn't that something I'm going to want to do? And I think, I mean, so in, in, in terms of a story perspective, I get it. And honestly, it's what I was expecting from the beginning when the neighbor lady who has the purge parties is like, well, you know, we've seen your husband sell all of us. uh, And that's what paid for that extra, you know, that new addition on your house. So I'm, I'm expecting it. And then I forget all about it because actual purgers. And then when they come and save them from the purgers at the end, I, that all comes rushing back and I'm like, oh shit, like that was the plan from the get-go. Like you see them mobilizing, you're like, okay, that's where this movie's going. And then it doesn't, and then it doubles back on that. At a, Like at the moment you've forgotten that that was a thing, it comes back to it and you're like, fuck, this is the best movie ever. I feel like, um, I wonder too, if they are especially offended by the Sandin's wealth because it's almost a throwaway line where uh, Ethan Hawke is looking at boats to buy. And he says, last mm. year we could barely make rent. Now we're talking about buying a boat. So they've had a come up very quickly. And so I wonder if their neighbors still kind of look at them as like, you know, not really one of us, not really having the money that we do. And they were all at a party together that the Sandins didn't get invited to. She lied and said she wasn't having her party, but she did. And so I feel like they all whipped themselves into a frenzy Mm -hmm. and went over there. And I also wonder if the cookies were poisoned. I wonder that every time I watch the movie, because there's this big show of her forcing cookies on Mrs. Sandin and being like, you know, take these dang cookies. And then the other neighbor drives by and he's like, oh, you're going to love those cookies. And then they never come up again. And I'm like, and, and while they're eating dinner, they're like, oh, there's no carbs in this dinner. So they're like clearly doing a no carb thing. And so I'm like, if they had eaten the cookies, were those poisoned? But that's just me with my cork board and my red string. I like that. I don't know. I like that. That's an interesting thread. I think it's. It's supposed to be just like, a, oh, you, we're, we're, we're your friendly neighbors. And that's, mm-hmm. but I, they don't revisit it. And now that you mention that, I'm just like, were the cookies poisoned? I mean, that'd be really anticlimactic for a night where you can go murder people violently, but no but must, then no you fuss. Like, but I can see another version of this movie where the, the, the coda is, uh, you know, the night we just had, I just want to have a cookie. <laughs> and you see like the neighbors that are still there kind of look at each other and, you know, you see her like start to froth at the mouth and just like keel over or the kid does yeah. it like like they're the son like after you've done all this to like keep the son safe he eats the cookie and dies like i can see like if you want to give this movie an extra gut punch that i don't know that it needs particularly a given 
everything we've just seen. That would be too yeah, I mean. I think so. That would yeah. be too mean. Yeah. But I can see another version of this movie yep. doing that. I don't think it's as good a movie, but I think I can see it happening. What do you think is more chilling? The dispassion of which that the neighbors are able to subdue the Sandins and tell them exactly what they're going to do with them because it's a pretty dis, dis, like very matter of fact and these are people that you live with and they're part of your community all year and that they're very able to very quickly justify killing them like well it's going to allow us to purge ourselves of our negative feelings towards you and it's just the way it's it's just going to happen it's the way it's going to be and there's nothing you can do about it is that chilling or is it more chilling to think of the 364 days leading up to that day when you put a smile on your face every day you talk about the weather you talk about your pets you wave you trade cookies Maybe they have like a neighborhood book. Like you could see them having a wine club or a book club and backyard mm-hmm. barbecues. Is it more chilling to think of like the 364 in days between when you're seething and want nothing more to murder these people, but you're putting on your best face? I mean, that's like American Psycho. And that, that's scarier when it's not happening you know sure Mm -hmm. it's i mean yeah it's and that's i think that's why that's chilling is what is it that makes these seemingly ordinary people willing to take these extremes like what is it but here's the thing when everything is legal for one day when everything becomes permissible you don't even need that big of a push Mm -hmm. to get you to that point because you know there aren't going to be any consequences for it. The only other thing I had, I like that. The only other thing I had was Charlie's robot and how he's like perving, he's perving on his mom because like there's Mm -hmm. that shot where like it spends a lot of time looking at Mary, uh, Lena Headey's feet like there's a long shot of the robot doing that. You know Charlie's looking at that. And then Tarantino it, has a lot to answer for right. that's all I'm gonna say. But it, but it zooms up and Lena Hetty is like kinda like kind of like bent over in, in a scolding position. And there's definitely some psychosexual undertones that are going on in that shot. It it brings up some feelings, is all I'm saying. I didn't think that, of that so. at all. Yeah, I'm a dirty man, so definitely, you know, I am a dirty birdie here. Who, someone has to be. Someone has to be, so. Takes all kinds, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I see it now that you're saying it. Just at the time, I did Right? Yeah. I mean, there is the vibe I got like in that moment was like it was a humiliation fetish like because she's like you shouldn't be doing this you shouldn't be spying and it's cropped in such a way where it'd be like a humiliation video and I just saw that in that moment so but also combined with the voyeuristic element of it all mm-hmm. as well yeah. like we're we're kind of compounding our taboos mm-hmm. at this point and really between that and what this kid witnessed in this night he's not gonna have a normal adulthood nope I thought it was the kid from Cobra Kai. I thought it was like LaRusso's kid because he looked so much like him, except this is a little bit older, so it kind of predates Cobra Kai. 
Uh, so I'm just like, just roundhouse the kid, you know, like, where's Daniel LaRusso? Um, yeah, and I think the only other talk with the the talking about the wealth and this neighborhood, there are a lot of shots of the opulence of this. Yeah, uh, there's a heavy focus on the game room in particular and this idea of acquiring things mm-hmm. like there's a pinball machine and a, mm-hmm. a regulation pool table. There are a lot of things that nobody really needs and nobody seeks to acquire. You know, yeah, that's a really good point. Both the kids go hide in their rooms, which make, you know, that's not too surprising for teenagers, but it's like the game room does not look like a playroom. It looks like a show space. Mm hmm possession for its own sake we had a room in my house growing up the parlor we never used it it was there was a nice couch and a nice little table and a little bit of art and a fireplace so never used it as not as children we weren't really allowed in that room i should say like company was allowed in there and we would have dinners in there but yeah it was just like this is a room because i think you know my dad grew up in a two-bedroom apartment as the youngest of four children from Armenian refugees who escaped the Armenian genocide at the hands of the Ottoman Empire. And my grandmother made shoes for 50 years, and my grandfather cut hair for 50 years, and my dad slept with his four, three brothers in one room. Um, and I think they liked having one room that was like, we don't do anything with this room. And it wasn't opulent or fancy. It was just like, nope, it's the parlor. Uh, and I just always remember that. And my friends saying, your house is like a museum. Like, it's very nice. It's always cold. And you're not allowed to touch anything. <laughs> and I think it's Which is a line from up. Ferris Bueller, too, I think. Is it? I think it is. Something like that. I didn't, I didn't put two and two together, but thank you. So uh, any final thoughts? Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to make a very bold statement right now. And I'm going to come down as saying that purge is a movie. Very good. Purge is an actual concept. Very bad. Don't very do bad. it. Very good. All right. It's a hot take. A strong hot take. I know. Look, I'm, I'm coming in hot tonight. I, I think I prep, I prepped you all for that. Um, no, but that, yeah, no, I, I like this movie. I'm, I'm excited to see where the franchise goes. Uh, Ari was giving me, um, you know, when she was like prepping you, I'm like, okay, where's it going? Like, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to engage with the rest of this franchise now. I'm, I'm super stoked. So I can't wait. It's not like the phantasm journey. Um, I I mean, mean, nothing. And I haven't seen the forever purge. That's the only one I haven't seen, but yeah, I'm, I'm so excited to, to listen along Mm -hmm. and watch along as, as you guys go through all these. Yeah. Yeah. Much like Phantasm, it is very much the vision of one creator. Mm -hmm. Because you have James DeMonaco writes and directs the first three. He writes the next two. And my understanding is he's pitched a sixth movie. Because Jason Blum has said, I want to do another one, but only if James wants to do one. He kind of sees this as very much his baby. I like that, by the way. I really like the idea and DeMonico has said, like, oh, you know what? I think I have an idea where we can kind of really turn the franchise on its ear a little bit. So I, I'm i interested. And I won't say these aren't my favorite movies. Um, I do appreciate the bottleneck or the bottle, the encapsulated story that you have in this one more a decade on in. But I think that there's like 
a lot of meat to chew on. Like I have about seven tabs open of articles I've only half read that I think will fit in with some later episodes. So I'm really fascinated to talk about these movies over the next month. So for the next two weeks, we have Anarchy coming up and then the Purge election year. If you like our political discussions, I'm sure you'll love those that that particular one. And then I believe we'll have, just based on how the timing works out, we'll have a one-week break from The Purge because that's when we'll be covering Scream 6, which comes out March 10th. So we will be covering that probably within... Our episode should probably drop within about four days of that movie hitting theaters. So it'll be, I think, a very movie-centric. There won't be a lot of background on that one. I have muted same all mention of Scream and Ghostface and other... Um, because I guess there was a spoiler that went up that I'm very happy I was able to miss. But we'll cover Scream. Then we have the final two Purge episodes after that. And then it might be, that might be when Evil Dead Rise hits, Ooh. just based on the timing. So we have a really fun couple of months planned for y'all. But this was our discussion on the first Purge from, or no, this was our discussion on the first Purge movie, The Purge, The Purgening. Um, <laughs> My goodness. Why wasn't Purge 2 called the Purge name? Yes. Purging 2 Electric Boogaloo. Back in the habit. <laughs> which I saw in theaters. Purge 2 Hyper Purge. <laughs> I've never seen Electric Boogaloo. I've seen Electric Boogaloo in theaters. Or Electric Boogaloo 2 in theaters. Well, yes. the first one's Breakin', and then Breakin' 2 is Electric Boogaloo. That's the one I saw in theaters. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I sat And behind... they came out the same year. The first yes. one was so profitable, they rushed the second one into production, came out the exact same year as the first one. they pulled a Ty West. Yeah. They did. Yeah. Although that wasn't I sat a, behind... a rush. No. no. I sat behind my quote-unquote friends <laughs> who didn't invite me to John's birthday party. <gasps> So it was. How know, dare they? I sat right behind them in the theater. Did you kick their seat the whole time? Because I would have. I don't think it hit me until later on that, like, oh, that was his birthday party and I wasn't enough of his friend to be invited. So, uh, yeah, John from Drake at Mass, that's probably who I would go after in the I was going like to say, that memory. for the purge, let's go, like, leave a flaming dog poop on his front stoop yeah. or something. Should I block the name out? You know, I would never purge anybody. Just an innocent yeah, beat thing, the name like out. I said. Yeah, it would be innocent. Just a, well, he he owned, his family owned a turkey farm. So dog poop would actually be oh. like, it would be like leaving like a nice fresh fragrance yeah. compared to turkey, like hundreds of turkeys. We could saran wrap his Turkey car. poop. Yeah, because we used to play basketball in his barn. They had an indoor basketball court in the barn. And the cool thing was like indoor basketball court in a barn. The bad thing was hundreds indoor of turkeys court in a barn. making poop all the time. So, oh, okay. Man. All right. I can't, I can't imagine that was well ventilated either. No, it was if not. we're going to tell Speaking farm of, stories, we could do a whole farm corner. We won't, but we could sometimes. That would be I the mean, patron. Ari and I are Midwestern yes. people here. so. <laughs> and I grew up in a farm town so we could share some things maybe when we relaunch the patron that's what we start with do. farm there stories we go. Yeah. farm talk <laughs> yeah. um so let's wrap it up let's talk about where you can find us all at and steven tell us yeah. about disenfranchised and what you have heard you had a really good guest on that's what i episode. heard we, we, 
We had an okay guest. Yeah. No. Um, we uh, so for those of you who don't know, disenfranchised is uh, we're a podcast about franchises of one. We talk about movies that were meant to get franchises but didn't. So kind of the opposite of this podcast. And we just had because Valentine's Day was last week. We we had our 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 perennial Valentine on. Um, your your very own host Mike Snoonian has been on for every Valentine's episode that we've had in the three years that we've been a podcast. Uh, he came on to talk the original 1981 My Bloody Valentine, the 2009 My Bloody Valentine remake, and this year he came on to talk 2001's Valentine. So we're running out of like <laughs> Valentine-centric um, horror failed franchise starters, so we might have to get a little outside the box next year. But um, but yeah, I contain we, multitudes. This I know. And so I'm not I'm not terribly concerned. I, I have a feeling we'll come up with something for you. Even if we have to talk the love guru, mm-hmm. we'll we'll find something for you to come uh, on and talk with. Oh wow. Uh <laughs> that's the one you're gonna okay. be sick for? Uh, I will I it would be hard to break tradition. I, you know, kinda like Cal Ripkin Jr. like probably didn't want to go out there night after night, every night. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he did. He laced up the spikes, so I kind of be the I got to be the Cal Ripken Jr. of the Halloween episodes. We're we're going to we're going to put off Love Guru for as long as we possibly Mm -hmm. can. There there are some other things I have on the list to tick off before we get there. So so don't worry. We're not jumping right into that one. And did we mention where we can find everything? Uh, you can find the Disenfranchise podcast on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. You can find me on Instagram, Letterboxd, and Twitter at Chewy Walrus. Excellent. And Ariel, how about yourself? Yes. So um, please check out ghoulsmagazine.com. It is a horror magazine, a, a webzine that looks at horror through the female perspective. And there's a ton of free articles and podcast episodes out there. We just are wrapping up our Valentine's Day stuff too, but we do anti-Valentine's at, at Ghouls. So um, we've covered The Loved Ones. We've covered Necromantic, Necromantic 2. We've got lists of like the worst boyfriends in horror. But we also have... Um, a lot of members only content. So for £4.99 a month, you can get access to exclusive episodes and articles. Um, so definitely check out Ghoul's Magazine if you haven't already. And you can find me on socials, uh, Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. I'm mostly on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm trying to figure out how to use Instagram, but I'm at Ari underscore Hellraiser. And I post all my stuff that's happening on my Twitter. So you can find me there. Excellent. And listeners, you know me. You can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter and Instagram. At Letterbox, you can find me at Mike Chump Change. You can also listen to my other show, Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, where we cover horror movies nearly exclusively through the lens of like their psychology. Bunch of really fun episodes. It's been a really fun month. We've done kind of like couples problems and romantic problems where we've done possession an american werewolf in london we just posted our episode on ty west's x we've had a number of phenomenal guests i've been it's usually jen lara and myself jen and lara have gone on hiatus just to kind of rest and recover and take care of themselves because it's been a tough year for a lot of folks so i am handling the duties there right now and have had like so many people step up to help out and keep it going. So check out Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast as well. 
And please, for this show, do us a favor. Go ahead and leave us a review. Rate, review, and subscribe to wherever you're getting your podcast from. But rating us on Apple Podcasts and leaving a few kind words in a review. Five stars only um, because anything less than that kind of hurts any podcast, which kind of sucks. Because um, four and a half stars is still really fucking good. I mean, it's an A. Um, but five stars only. Why you like the show. Um, it should take you two minutes. And it's, it. I can't stress enough how huge it is. Like whenever we get a few new reviews, we see our numbers go up. We see us listed higher on the uh, Apple Podcast landing page. It's a huge boost for us. Check out our website, the Pod and the Pendulum. Oh, sorry, PodandthePendulum.com. All of our back episodes are listed there. There's some great cover art. I'm thinking of toying around with a few other little things we can do to make that a more fan-friendly experience as well. Like we could add a voicemail line to that page. So if listeners wanted to leave us their thoughts on the movies we cover or your own personal purge list. I was going to say, call in with your purge guys. Could be. We could use those uh, in future court cases and criminal cases that would arise. Leave us a five star review or else. Right. Right. But thank you so much for listening. We we do hope you've enjoyed this. And again, I thought this would be a tight ninety, but you know, here we are. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate everybody that has not only listened to our show, but spread the word, has listened to us among their favorite podcasts, and have told others about us. Like, we are a completely independent show. There is no network we're on. I do very little to market it. It is all based on the strength of, like, the co-hosts that we have, the guests that we have, and you as listeners, like, spreading the good word and watching this grow over the past few years really warms my heart and it's you to thank so we appreciate you all i'm saying is we appreciate you have a fantastic week and we'll be back next time with the purge anarchy Safe night. Bye.